Are you ready to be transported back to 1800s high society London? Because season three of Bridgerton is now playing only on Netflix. This season follows the story of the Tons resident wallflower, Penelope Featherington, as she undergoes a journey of self-discovery and empowerment where we see her truly blossom. Penn's emotional transformation takes centre stage as her friendship with the charming Colin Bridgerton evolves into something more. For those not yet acquainted, Colin, the charming younger brother of the Bridgerton family, is about to turn Penelope's world upside down. Mm, This is the ultimate good friends to lovers story. From those initial butterflies to when both parties realise there might be something more between them, watch Bridgerton Season 3, now playing only on Netflix. I had spent so much time trying to pretend that I was fine and then desperately trying to find an answer to why I had got into this state. And when I was in rehab, I just sort of realised, you know, that's not the thing that matters. You've just got to figure out a way out. Like, how do you get from this point back into living? Welcome to Shameless, the celebrity and pop culture podcast for smart women who love dumb stuff. Today on the show, we have the warm, generous and stupidly clever Georgie Dent. Georgie is a former lawyer, a journalist, an old editor of ours, actually, and the author of the new and best-selling memoir, Breaking Badly. At 24, things were going pretty good for Georgie. She'd landed a job at a prestigious law firm, was living with her boyfriend and had so much ahead of her. But in her own words, she broke. By 25, Georgie was unemployed, back living with her parents, and suffering crippling anxiety. She ended up in a psychiatric hospital. To quote the book's own blurb, Breaking Badly is the story of a nervous breakdown in slow motion. So, here's Georgie. Georgie, hi. Hello. Welcome to Shameless. Thank you so much for having me. We worked together for like a fleeting, fleeting second. I think the only uh, interaction we would have had is I would have seen your name pop up on Slack. I was thinking the same thing. And I remember you were like a big editor at Mamma Mia. (laughs) And we were measly little interns or editorial assistants. And I remember knowing who you were and be like, oh, Georgie's in Slack. I I remember Georgie flipped me a task once because I reckon we must have only overlapped by about two weeks. And I was like... (laughs) What was the task? I don't remember. Probably, I I was probably nice. loading up a story. Yes, you were so <laughs> nice. Uh, yeah, well, I guess because you guys were down here in Melbourne yeah. and I'm Sydney-based, so we didn't – yeah, and also it was a big business, so we didn't yeah. always – you know, we weren't physically in the same room. But now look – Who's the big people? Uh, you, because we're interviewing <laughs> you about the book. Georgie, we do start every episode in the same way, which is what are you reading, watching or listening to at the moment? Well, I'm reading a really good book called Breaking Bad. Oh, <laughs> So am I. <laughs> uh, we all are. Yes. Uh, no. Okay. So what am I watching currently? Press Ooh. is ah. a series that is, is on ABC iView. Yeah, it is British and it's 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 fictional, but it's kind of two competing newspapers and one is like total tabloid and the other one is trying to be very open-minded and have a lot of integrity and it's, it's amazing to watch. The other thing that I'm watching, which I'm sure you guys have talked about, is The Bold Type. Of Constant. course. Love it. I just love dipping in and out. I have a controversial opinion about The Bold Type. You don't enjoy it. I loved season one and two. And then season three seemed a little... Are you up to season three? No. Oh, no. I'm so sorry. Okay. It gets worse. No, that's fine. Okay. Look, but how many series does that happen to I where know. you watch yeah. and it's just amazing for two seasons and then it 
You know what I think? I think the writers changed. There must have been a switchover of who was actually writing the storylines. Yeah, okay. And I wonder if as writers or as people kind of in like media or like creative industries, you can sense that more when things become really obvious. Some of the storylines, I'm like, it's a little bit cliched. Yes. But yep. season one and two, bangers. Loved yeah, it. Yeah, so I'm still in that zone. Oh, oh enjoy it's it. It's a beautiful zone. I'll hey, interesting <laughs> that both of those shows are quite journalistically focused, yeah, writing it focused. it is quite interesting. I do, so we, my husband and I, I went through a phase where basically everything we watched was crime. Yeah. And Nick, my husband, was like, can we please watch something where people don't die, where someone don't, doesn't accidentally kill someone and then their whole life is ruined. So it is – we definitely – I'm I'm not always exclusively watching media shows, um, but those two at the moment are. Obviously, one's a magazine, one's newspapers. Yeah. But I do, you know, like Line of Duty, the yeah. a, a British – police drama like I love that sort of stuff interesting see we're gonna get into all the anxiety stuff obviously very very soon but as someone with anxiety I really struggle to watch crime and murder mysteries and all that kind of stuff because it make it gives me that fight or flight response as I'm watching and I feel that adrenaline going and it makes me super anxious I'm surprised you yeah see, this is this is that's something that's quite funny because my husband is like the least anxious person in the world he's just not wired like that but he finds it quite stressful when we watch shows <laughs> like that which he's just and like, you're like welcome <laughs> this is what it's like yeah and I but I actually quite I don't find I don't know I think maybe because I worry about so much other stuff yeah. when I'm watching a tv show that's not true. I do sometimes get anxious when I'm watching TV, but it is one of those things where Nick has specifically said, can we please watch something where no one, I'm not terrified about how people are ruining their life. First of all, I guess I do want to ask, what compelled you to write about your mental illness? Because it's such a personal and private thing for so many people and you've just released a whole book about it. What compelled you to do that? Yeah, well, I suppose the sharing of my experience has been a gradual process because so when I had my nervous breakdown, that was... 12 years ago now uh, so it was quite a while and two years after that happened I actually wrote an anonymous piece that Mamma Mia published so that was back in the day where Mamma Mia was literally just Mia and a blog and we were living in the UK at that point um, I had yeah I had left my job at BRW magazine because my husband was offered a scholarship overseas so we moved over there and I was unemployed and I couldn't get a job and but I loved writing and I had been working as a writer. And I just sat down and wrote this piece about what had happened to me and I sent it off, not sure really what would happen. And they published it and the response was – it was actually – even though my name wasn't attached, it was quite scary to think that this story is going to be shared mm. with people. But it was a very validating experience because almost as soon as it went up, the number of comments of people who basically said – this is me or this is my sister or I have gone through something like this, it actually really blew me away. Because what did you say in that story? What was the crux of it? Well, it was basically like a the much shorter version of my book. Okay. You know, basically this is what had happened. I had been working as a lawyer. I had Crohn's disease. I had endometriosis, all of these sort of health things, and then mm-hmm. it came to a head one night at work. I fell over with the vertigo attack and then I basically spent three months on my parents' couch, not able to do anything, trying to find out why I was so dizzy and why I was so unwell. And then it culminated in me being admitted to a psychiatric hospital and being diagnosed with anxiety. And that was rock bottom in a lot of ways, but it actually was also the beginning of my recovery yeah. because it was the time that I realised there was a, there was actually a something, a solution in a way because I I could treat anxiety. Um, and so the story that I wrote was sort of a really brief – I mean it was about – it wasn't – I think it was about 1,500 words so it wasn't really short but 
that blew me away, the response that that got. And then a couple of years later when I was back in – we were back in Sydney and I was editing Women's Agenda, I just had this compulsion on World, on World Mental Health Day. I was like, I'm actually going to run this story. It was a slightly different version but with my name on it. And again, that was – the response blew me away. Um, and then, so when I was, I was approached by a publisher about two and a half years ago, and actually I was approached before that, but I was heavily pregnant with our third baby. And I was like, I actually don't want to write a book while I have this baby. I just want to have the child. The child. Baby and, bubble. Yeah. 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 And I was like, I know having three kids is going to be full on. And that was actually a really good decision that I made. And that was, it's one of those things where there would have been a time where I wouldn't have been able to make a choice like that. I would have just thought, no, I have to do this because if you're offered this opportunity, whereas I actually was able to say, do you know what, for me, I don't want to put that pressure on myself. Mm-hmm. And But then fortunately, the publisher was still interested after I'd had that baby and I was sort of emerging from the bubble. And she said, you know, what do you want to write about? And I said, well, I think the story I have to tell is is what happened because whenever I speak about it, even just socially, but also when I do public speaking about it, it just resonates with people. Mm. And so a lot of people have, 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 when they read the book or they hear me talk, they do say, you know, it's, it's so brave to actually be open about it. And I think because I, I, I gradually opened up, it hasn't felt I, I haven't ever thought that I'm incredibly brave for doing this. When yeah. I stop and think about it, I'm like, oh, yeah, it is quite something to just mm. open up your heart and soul and write your story. But I think because I sort of started a long time ago, it's been a gradual process and I feel like this is – I feel comfortable sharing mm. what happened. So you don't feel completely exposed all at once. It has been that gradual thing. Yes. What do you think it is about your story? Because there's something – I mean, it's quite an extraordinary story in terms of all of the things that can happen to one person in such a short amount of time. But then on the other hand, we're talking about how so many people are saying, hey, that's me too. What is it about the story? Do you think it's a combination of both of those things? Why is it resonating so much? Yeah, I think it is a combination of a couple of factors because I think in my book, in my life, there's been a couple of sort of themes that people I think can relate to. So chronic illness is one of them. Um, And whether that's endometriosis or Crohn's that I've had, I think there's lots of people that have illness and we don't really – there's still an invisibility that goes with a lot of chronic illnesses. So I think writing about that is is one thing that connects with some people. I think anxiety itself is so prevalent so that even if you're not in the sort of perfect storm that I was and things aren't as extreme as being admitted to a psychiatric hospital, I think living with anxiety is something that affects a lot of people. I think also the sort of career burnout slash realising that you're not in the job that you want because part of – I mean, I didn't have a nervous breakdown because I was a lawyer and I didn't like being a lawyer. It wasn't as simple as that. But I think feeling trapped in a job and feeling like I have to stick this out because this is what I did when it's not working for you, I think that is, again – an experience or a sensation that a lot of people can relate to. Well, one of the things that really spoke to me was your pursuit of perfectionism. I know I have anxiety as well and I have chronic illness in the form of asthma, but not to the level that you did at the time of your nervous breakdown. But reading it, it was that perfectionism that really stuck out to me. And I think that's something that lots of people with high functioning anxiety really struggle with because you never live up to that ideal. And as soon as something falls over, you make a mistake or something goes wrong. It is like the world is against you, everything. Like you are awful, you're not suited to your life, you're not coping well, you're weak. Yeah, And that was something the doctors put onto you a lot as well, wasn't it? Yeah, it is. And that's one of the things from writing the book that I don't think that I had fully appreciated 
the extent to which doctors hadn't helped my my mental space but also my ability to cope with having illness because the message I seemed to get from doctors a lot was that there's something wrong with you, like you're the patient that we don't want to see, you don't respond to the drugs the way we want you to, you don't bounce back from surgery as, as well as other people do. And I hadn't actually considered the full impact of of those of those sorts of comments, but they just they played into the narrative I already had in my head. I'm not good enough. That I'm not good mm. enough. And I'm and, weak as well. I think that's yeah. such a thing with anxiety that you feel like you can't cope with what everyone else is coping with just fine. Yes. And if you can't cope with everyday life, what does that say about you? Yes, exactly. And I think I, I had a lot of – I think perfectionism is one of the things that has made the book connect with a lot of people because I think a lot of us struggle with it. And I think that – I was in I was in until I had my nervous breakdown I was in a headspace where everything was black or white you know I was either I was sick therefore I was a failure and I was weak or I wasn't sick and therefore I was per, you know I was strong and it was but it's actually the reality is it's not that simple and there will be days where you don't do something well that doesn't mean your whole life is pointless and you're a total failure but in my head and I think that's also something that a lot of people can relate to that you are selling yourself only two options in a lot of scenarios when actually there's a lot of grey in between the black and white and it can be far more nuanced than you – know, you can have a bad day and your life is not horrendously bad. No, completely. But it can feel like that when you're in yeah. that headspace, when you're struggling with anxiety, when perfectionism is is the way you live, it's really impossible to um, cope with little hiccups. You touched on the invisibility of chronic illness before as someone with Crohn's and endo as well. Mm. I wanted to chat to you about kind of the unsexiness of chronic illness because Mm. I think when it comes to chronic illness, there are so many people, particularly so many young women, who are dealing with some kind of chronic pain. And there's something so boring about it and there's something that people don't really want to talk about because people don't know how to talk about it. There's something so mundane about it. Did you feel that too in that I, it's not a conversation I want to have as a 22-year-old with my friends because it's not interesting? Yes, definitely. And that was one of the things because I was 19 when I was diagnosed with endometriosis and then a few months later Crohn's disease. And for both of those things I had to have a number of procedures which were horrendously ugly and not sexy and not what you want to be doing when you're 19. And I did feel isolated because of those things because I just felt like I felt there was there was I think I was embarrassed on some level of these problems that I had. Uh, and I am a really extroverted person and I've always really enjoyed the company of other people and it was quite jarring for me to discover that because of illness I could be with other people and yet I could still feel so alone because I didn't feel like at 19 all of my friends we were all at uni even when I was with them and we were ostensibly all having a good time I felt this but then they're, they're healthy mm. and I'm not and like they don't know what you. yeah I did and that was something that um I think that was part of why I was quite determined to kind of have these two separate I wanted to just ring fence my illness as something that mm. happened behind closed doors. No one needed to know about it. And I think, you know, in some ways there is something to be said for having a little bit of, of that because I think it does allow you to sort of keep living. But I think I ended up – it ended up being quite toxic for me because I just was 
unwilling to actually acknowledge that my health was a problem. And accept it. It's like compartmentalising is one thing, but yes. denial is another entirely. Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. It is also this sense, I think, for young women, and I don't know if I'm oversimplifying or overgeneralising now anyway, that we have this like complete desire to be uncomplicated, like to be the easiest, most polite, likeable versions of ourselves. And that means being uncomplicated and that means being healthy and not sort of a burden on Especially anyone. Especially at 19 when yeah. you want to be out partying and people are drinking and, I don't know, dating boys and whatever, the last thing you want is to go, actually, an entire part of my body is really struggling and endo is seeping into every part of your life and Crohn's even more so, it would just be such a burden to bear, right? Yeah, it was. And I think you're so right, Zara, about wanting to be uncomplicated because that was something I am and people please, I still Mm. am. Um, But I would, and I still have to check myself sometimes when I go to doctors because there are times when I have not said what's actually going on because I want them I want to be a good patient I don't want to be the bad patient where things aren't working and it's like but actually I'm not I'm not bad if the medication I've been given isn't working that's not but for me that was sort of like oh I'm so difficult and certainly doctors didn't help that narrative because they had doctors say horrendous things to me that kind of promoted that line of thinking but I do still have that inclination to want to present as um, uncomplicated and straightforward, but that's not life. Mm. And I think accepting that there is that, those degrees and there's nuance there was actually really, I mean, it sounds quite simple, but it was one of those quite, it was a paradigm shift for me really to be able to accept that it's okay to go into an appointment and say this isn't working without that being an indictment on my you know, my strength as a person or my character or my value. How do you look back on, I guess, the darkest point of your life? I know there's a chapter in the book where you talk about being, you go for a walk with your then boyfriend, now husband, and you end up lying down in a ditch on the road and Mm. you couldn't move and you didn't want to get up and you were there for about half an hour. Can you bring me back to the loneliness of that time? I know that your relationship with your mother was fraying because you were so unwell and you were probably bickering and fighting a lot because you were living at home. You were trying to push your boyfriend away at the point. You are probably feeling really isolated from your friends. How is loneliness when you're coping with all of these things that are so internal? Yeah, look, my lowest ebb was really very dark. You know, I was... Um, I felt incredibly alone, even though at that point I basically hadn't been by myself for months because I had moved back in with my mum and dad and mum had stopped. She was on carer's leave from her job looking after me. So I was actually always with someone, but I felt so desperately alone and I felt so scared. Uh, and I, I genuinely thought that I was never going to be well again. And it, sound, it, it can sound like a sentence like that can sound almost flippant in one way. But when you are living that, I was literally waking up every single day for three months just thinking there's nothing. My life is over. I'm never going to be well again. That's why, you know, I, I was pushing Nick away because I was like, you don't need to be dragged down by this. You know, we were young. We were, at that point, we were both 24. And I, I was, you know, things like getting messages from my friends, texts would just send me into a tailspin because they would be lovely and check in on me and I would throw my phone because I was like, I don't have an answer. I'm not good. I don't want to tell you how bad I am because I didn't want to be that bad. But things were horrendous Um, and there was a total loss of hope. Mm. Um, And so that was really – it was really, really tough. 
How do your friendships survive that at that age? Because I think with chronic illness and mental health, when you're young, there's a sense that you can very easily fall out of the loop if you're too hard to get in contact with, if you don't know how to have a conversation with them about it and say, I'm not okay. How do you keep those bonds strong at a time when they're your least priority? Yeah, well, I mean, certainly my friendships played a far smaller role in my life at that point. Mm. Then, but having said that, I was really through school and uni. I had, I, and I still do have some amazing friends, and so I had lots of friends that I did keep in touch with while I was unwell. I certainly wasn't catching up with anyone, but there were, and you know, I had a couple of my good friends were calling mum regularly. There were other friends talking to Nick regularly, so people cared about me. I actually found that quite overwhelming because I didn't want people to be worried. And I didn't really want anyone. I just wanted me to not exist at that point. I never, ever, I was never suicidal and I didn't want my life to be over, but I sort of just didn't want anyone to know what was happening. Um, So it was, it wasn't like I was in an active zone of friendship at that point, but I was fortunate that I had had enough sort of strong bonds with people that it didn't spell the end of it, um, you know, the end of those friendships. And I was really lucky that Nick and I had a really strong bond that even though it was in this we were in a bad place and I really did think he should just go and find a nice girlfriend who wasn't sick he he sort of had that perspective that I wasn't able to have he was like you will be better and we'll be okay coming up after the break Georgia talks about the moment she arrived at rehab with her parents in tow but first a word from our sponsors but I did have endometriosis and Crohn's and that was sort of active concerns. And so I think him at that point being a very junior medical student, it was it was sort of a fortuitous twist because he was like he had a level of interest and understanding that maybe other people wouldn't have had. And I think that that has probably always been quite useful for us because I'm always seeing doctors and mm. it's a big part of my life. And he definitely had a And also he, I mean, I remember when we first met and sort of he first found out about all my health things, he was like, wow, that is so much to be going through. And again, it was, that's the sort of comment that you don't actually get very often from doctors. And the the amazing physician who ended up sort of kind of giving me the, the solution ultimately, he was similar, like he was compassionate and he looked at the whole thing and he was like, Georgie, I'm so sorry for what you're going through. And so, yes, I do think Nick having an interest in medicine definitely helped. And I think that fortunately he is a really optimistic person Mm. and he really did genuinely believe that I would be better. And you need someone like that around you, don't you? Like he even sent that encyclopedia basically of all your health concerns (laughs) to your house. Yeah, he did. And also, I mean, I don't know, it's it's funny because he is quite a private person and out of discretion for me, he even now, like with this book, he's so proud that it's out there, but he says because he's been telling people at work about it and then they say, oh, what's the book about? And for him, <laughs> it's quite a leap to say, oh, actually, um, so my wife went to a psychiatric hospital <laughs> because it feels like such a big disclosure. Yeah. Um, so for him, you know, at that time when I was unwell, I, we were sort of, I was really his key support, even though I was the problem. Um, but because he wouldn't talk openly with other people. I mean, his close Classic friends. Classic man. And, <laughs> yeah, but so he didn't, yeah, he wasn't sort of telling everyone around him how bad things were with me, but we kept in touch. Like we spoke all the time and he would come when he could. Um, and that was, that was a huge lifeline for me during that time because I had this person that, um, was just there all the time. Can you talk about 
being admitted to a psychiatric hospital. I know that you had just seen doctor after doctor, and I think the point in the book where you do get admitted to the psychiatric hospital, you pushed it back a week because you wanted to see a guru who everyone was talking about, cost $500 for you to go to the appointment, turned out to be probably one of the shitter of the mental, of medical the experiences you had. Mm. He basically told you you were a cappuccino girl. Mm. Is that the mm. – yeah. yeah. And he thought my dad was my boyfriend. It was a horrendous <sighs> appointment. Yeah. After all that, after disappointment after disappointment of all these doctors and gurus and whatever, medical specialists and diets failing you where you just felt like nothing was working, how were you feeling when you were sitting out the front of a psychiatric hospital with your mum and your dad in the car and you didn't want to get out? Yeah, so that that was really terrifying and I felt the drive from – so where my parents live in um, northern New South Wales in Lismore to the – psychiatric hospital I went to was just on the sort of outskirts of the Gold Coast near Corumban and it's about an hour and a half drive from mum and dad's place and I got dad to pull over about five times because I just I was dry retching I was I felt so sick and so scared so was it nerves yeah Yeah. it was oh I was just I mean it's just it's such a strange thing you don't imagine yourself well I had certainly not imagined the day that my parents would be driving me to a psychiatric hospital I hadn't thought about that ever and I we got there and I just didn't want to get out of the car and, you know, all of that was quite awful and then you walk inside and you're in a waiting room with people and everybody is having the worst day of their life because nobody, it's not an aspirational destination. No one wants to be going to a psychiatric hospital. So all of that was really confronting and really daunting Um but then it was weird because once I got taken to my room and I was sharing a room with a really lovely woman um, called Sue who was sort of in her early 50s and had had breast cancer two years ago and two years prior to that and then because of the chemo and radiation she'd become physically quite unwell and then she had developed major anxiety. So even though our situations were quite different, we had a shared situation where we sort of had where physical health and mental health had kind of collided together and her and I kind of had this big chat after mum and dad left and her daughters, who her adult daughters had dropped her there and her and I sat and had this huge chat and it was, I just felt safe with her. And even like last night I was talking to mum and dad, that was one of these weird things because there were all sorts of different people in the hospital and I don't think there's a scientific method for, for rooming people together. But it just happened that I was with this woman who I immediately felt quite comfortable with and listening to her story made me have compassion towards myself that I hadn't had Mm. because she felt so guilty for putting this on her family that, you know, she couldn't cope with the the treatment for breast cancer. And all I kept thinking was, you don't need to feel guilty. You didn't ask for breast cancer. You Mm. didn't ask to have chemo and radiation. You're doing the absolute best that you can. And suddenly I was like, I've never thought that about myself. (laughs) Wait a second. Wait, (laughs) hang on. Um, And so it sort of, it ended up being an incredibly positive experience for me mm. being in, in rehab. It, it really genuinely was because it, everything was under one roof. There was a GP there. There was a psychiatrist, a psychologist. There were social workers. There were sessions on everything. And I loved I went to everything. Um, well, you're a nerd. So <laughs> you would have been like, teach me all the things. Let, yes, I'll learn about addiction. <laughs> yeah. But I also, I think the thing is because at that point I had had four months where I was literally doing nothing. Yeah. This was like this weird halfway house because you could stay in your pajamas. It was all literally in the same building, but you could go and do things. And so for me, having purpose, <laughs> but safe purpose, because yeah. I was also – there were doctors there, you know, because I still was quite weak at that point. But it was – I really did throw myself into it mm. and it was – that was good for me because I think keeping up work and purpose is actually really, really important. And I wasn't 
it was the right thing for me to have four months doing absolutely nothing because I don't think I would have been able to make the changes I did mm. if things hadn't got as bad as they did. Mm. That sense of sort of shame and guilt that you touched on is so funny because I think so many people with chronic illness have it and it's not until somebody else. Like even listening to your story and listening to podcasts and reading your book, it's so frustrating from the outset hearing somebody feel so guilty about an illness they have no control over. Do you think it's kind of a, a potentially more female trait in that because we want to be liked and be so Because we're people supposed to be giving the care to other people. Yeah. We don't want to accept the care ourselves That or we're something. more yes. likely to take on that burden mm. and it might therefore get in the way of our treatment and our progress. Yes, I think that's true. And I, I mean, it's interesting because I have, not deliberately, but just because of my career and then the nature of this book, I do speak to more young women than I speak to men. Mm-hmm. I certainly know anxiety is a, is a huge issue for a lot of men as well, totally. but I do. And But in terms of the people that I've spoken to who deal with chronic illness, most of them are female and there is that guilt attached. And I think it does come back to those you know, that bit about wanting to be uncomplicated and not having problems. But also, Michelle, what you said about we're supposed to be the carers, we're the, supposed to sort of make everyone okay in workplaces. We're the people that, you know, make sure birthdays are recognised and we do all of that sort of stuff. And when you've got chronic illness or when you are impaired in some way from being the the nurturer and the carer when you actually need it, there's something that uh, it can feel, you know, that you are letting people down. Mm. And... I don't all of these things when you unpick them you just because that, that was what really and one of the huge things that I learned in rehab was just how horrendous I had been to myself mm. and I didn't know you know I hadn't unpicked that narrative about the illness but it was listening to other people talk about their experiences when I suddenly thought wow you know this is I have chronic illness I do not need to punish myself on top of that by feeling guilty for having it. It's already bad enough. Mm. But I just I wasn't aware of that mm. process. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, mm. totally. And it reminds me of a line in the chapter where you're talking about be- or the section of the book where you're broken and you are in the psychiatric facility and you're sitting with a group of people who are very, very unwell. And there's one man, what was his name? I can't remember his name now. John. He's talking to John. And John hasn't said a word really in the two weeks that you've known him. He's so depressed and he can't stop crying to the point where he can't even speak. Yeah. And in that moment where you're telling everyone your experience, he reaches out to you and basically says, you need to go easier on yourself. Like yeah. be kind to yourself. Yeah. And the line that really stuck out to me was you asked, how can humans be so broken? I want to know, what's it like to be surrounded by people who are at their rock bottom and to see people like John and how did that affect you in yeah. years afterwards? So it was the psychiatric hospital that I went to. It's a private hospital and there were two wards. So basically there were people admitted for mood disorders, which was me, and then there were drug and alcohol addictions. And so there was sort of across the spectrum of population and and problems that were there. So there were people like John who were – he was um, older. He, I think he would have been in his 50s, potentially even 60s, and he was horrendously depressed, clinically depressed. Um, so there, was, there were people like that – and then there were people that had bipolar. There were people that had sort of drug and alcohol addictions and different – there was sort of humanity at all different stages and but everyone was sort of at their worst. And it was – I don't – it was very levelling because when you go into an environment like that, you start to see – I don't know, I, it gave me perspective – because I just thought, okay, there are so many of us who are struggling and, and the reasons that we're struggling are different, but 
the options now are all the same. Like, mm-hmm. what what do we do? Because I think I had spent so much time trying to pretend that I was fine and then desperately trying to find an answer to why I had got into this state. And when I was in rehab, I just sort of realised, you know, that's not the thing that matters. You've just got to figure out a way out. Like, how do you get from this point back into living? And I... You know, being there did give me an appreciation of the stuff that actually mattered. You know, it didn't matter if I didn't want to be a lawyer. I didn't have to be a lawyer. Literally, it did not matter because when you're in a psychiatric hospital and you're looking at what people are dealing with, the perspective you get is profound. I wonder Um, if that isolating aspect to mental illness as well, where you had struggled with it for so many years and it had been so internal, if being able to put faces on other people going through the same struggle was really clarifying? It was. It was very clarifying. And also the thing is, I was one of the younger, I think I was probably the youngest person there in the mood disorder Mm. wing. We sort of, we did a lot of things together, but there were a few people in the drug and alcohol wing who were young as well. But I was one of the younger people in the mood disorders and I think it I I sort of just looked ahead at my life and I thought I've I've got a lot of time in front of me you know ideally hopefully and I don't want to be I want to give this my best shot of trying to get better from here because not that and I I don't want to sound insensitive like that I was looking at other people thinking I don't want to be here when I'm 50 but I just did sort of think and that was what John said to me you know and afterwards he was just like love there's so much for you you don't need to be here and he was so kind and I just thought do you know what I've got so many things in my corner Mm -hmm. and I just need to get myself better. How was it then writing the book 10, 15 years later, did it bring up stuff that you hadn't resolved? Did it sort of, I mean, you even touched on how maybe with hindsight, doctors really, some certain doctors really didn't help you get better. Were there things like that that kept rearing their head where you thought, I actually haven't dealt with some of this yet? Uh, not really. I So when I signed the contract to write this book, we do have three kids and I do have a, a day job. I've sort of got a few day jobs. So I really, to to begin writing this, I just had to get stuff down. And that was good in a way because I just wrote and I didn't have too much time. And, you know, this is one of the funny things. Obviously having kids adds another layer of logistical, emotional challenges. But one of the really good things is that it also just gives you, you just don't have the time to worry about things. And I actually think for me that's a great thing about having kids and working because you just sort of, there's a real division between what you're doing and so I would sort of have my days writing the book and then I'd be home and then it just didn't even matter what had happened in the book, if you know what I mean. I found the editing process actually more upsetting because by that stage the work was there, we had to tweak it and so I actually had to delve into it more and I did – there were a number of times where I just was struck by how sad – my experience was and and how sad it was that I felt the way that I did. And, you know, that's something that people have asked. Even Nick, actually, when he read the book, he was like, why do you think you were so hard on yourself? Because even before everything came to a head, I was really mean to myself. Mm. I was always sort of wielding these unrealistic expectations on myself and I was never, I never patted myself on the back for anything. And I don't know why that was. You know, I think part of that is just genetic wiring to an extent, you know, and and I was certainly that way inclined. But when I stopped and thought about some of the things that I was doing to myself, even, you know, 12 years on when I was writing this book, you just think it's so sad Mm. that I put myself through that. 
but I think a lot of people do. You say in the book that you have always been an anxious person. Since you were a kid, that's been something intrinsic to you, and it's the same with me. I have always wondered what I would be like without my anxiety because I feel like some aspects of my anxiety are who make me who I am and they make me maybe good at my job or they make me mm. good at relationships because I always want to make sure the other person's okay and I'm people-pleasing and stuff. Do you ever wonder that anxiety might be a part of your personality that has some benefits as well? Or yes. that if you could take it away, you'd be a completely different person at the same time? Yes, and I think that's what – when I was talking earlier about the black and white thinking, one of the things that I've come to accept about anxiety – and I've had very good psychologists point this out at different points, so it's not like I came to this all on my own. <laughs> Neither did I at all. But <laughs> it is, you know, one of the psychologists that I, that I have seen, she sort of said to me, you know, you've got to think about all of the parts – of, that make you, you know, you are really thoughtful, you are sensitive, you're attuned with other people. And there's certainly qualities there that you want to keep. But it's sort of recognising what is the toxic component of anxiety? Like, do I need to be physically stressed at all times? No, that's not helpful. It certainly wasn't Do I need to leave me. the house? Probably, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, and it's sort of just putting those things in check and saying, so, you know, I am an anxious person, I'll always be an anxious person. And there's part of me that thinks, imagine how life, how simple life would be if I wasn't. But there's not a fantasy land where that's going to happen. And I'm okay with accepting the parts of my personality. I accept that I'm more um, predisposed to worrying and I have to keep a check on that. But at the same time, I don't want to not have all of that because it does make me, it ha- I think it helps me have the relationships that I have because I am quite empathetic. You know, because I think because I think all the time and I'm mm. really of a feeling person. Probably I'm passionate well, It's as like well. a thoughtfulness yeah. thing, isn't it? Like if you yeah. are going to be inherently more thoughtful about things, you're going to be thoughtful about other people. Yes. I like that idea though that nothing is all good or all bad, whether that is illness, mental illness, chronic illness, like mm. good and bad things come from both of them. How do you consider your health in the future, particularly as a parent? Like do you – does that worry extend to what's my health going to look like in 10, 15 years or does that not the kind of thing that crosses your mind so much yet? Um, it is. So after I went to rehab and was put on some medication uh, for anxiety, funnily enough, about two months later, my Crohn's disease symptoms disappeared. So, And there is there are studies that show that happens because Crohn's is an autoimmune disease. There's a lot about it that's not known, but there is something about calming the nervous system down that has a positive impact on the physical signs of symptoms of Crohn's. So that happened for me and I had um, almost – I think I had eight years of absolutely no Crohn's of any kind. So I've stayed on the medication for anxiety and that has worked for me and it's helped my Crohn's. But after I had our second baby, I developed rheumatoid arthritis in my spine and that is a manifestation of Crohn's that I didn't know was a thing, but it is. And so I have actually had over the last five years, I've had some pretty horrendous health. And with kids, that's hard because... Being in pain is really hard when you've physically got to lift toddlers and babies. And, you know, that's so I certainly have had to live with um, compromised health. But one of the things, and, and, you know, this is where I have had to sort of put into practice my understanding about there being nuance. Because when I signed the contract for this book, my spine was at its worst. So I was having all of these injections, I was having these horrendous procedures, like nerve ablations, awful. And I was also, you know, this book had come about and I was really struggling to reconcile how things could be so bad in one part of my life because my health was horrendous when something was going well in a, in a work sense. And I actually, it was funny because I didn't want to tell the publisher about my back and problem, health problems and I also didn't want to tell 
the doctors or the psychologist I was seeing about the book because I was like, how can these two things coexist? But the reality is that is actually what it's like with chronic illness and with anxiety, that good and bad coexist and that it's not I'm in this bad way, therefore I am bad or, you know, I'm writing a book, therefore everything is good. It's like, well, this is life. There are, light and shade. Yeah, <laughs> light and shade. Happens. There is, And that's, you know, it's accepting that and being comfortable with that is mm. something that it's been valuable for me to be able to do that. Mm. And sometimes it takes time. You know, I need to actually stop and process it. I did actually feel really conflicted for a while about this mm. situation where I was like, how is this supposed – and I felt like a fraud in, in both instances yeah. because I was like, well, how could I be sick if I can write a book? And – it, it just didn't seem to work in my head. But then you actually think, well, that's actually the way life is. Mm-hmm. And so I do worry about my health um, long term. I worry about it short term as well because it's a, I'm, I'm actually in a good place at the moment. I've been on some medication that is finally helping the arthritis. So I'm out of pain, which I don't like saying because okay. I might jinx it. But, um, There's wood here. We can touch it. Yeah, touch the wood. <laughs> um, I just touch plastic. But it's also, <laughs> it's also one of the things about any illness, whether it's mental or physical, is accepting that right now won't be forever. You know, that this moment, yes. won't, that, that this day might be bad, but tomorrow it doesn't have to be. It may be, but it also may not be. Whereas it was, it's easy when you get into that, when you are unwell, to sort of just feel like, oh, my God, this is over. Life is over forever. Life I'll be, is bad. Life is yeah, bad. bad. Where you sort of just have to have some perspective and think, okay, this is a bad day. Let's see what tomorrow's like. We finish every episode in the same way, and that is with two questions. The first is, what is next for you? I imagine a lot more of this. And the second is, who are some women that you have, whether in your life or people that just inspire you that you look up to? Okay, what is next? Well, it's actually my birthday and in two Happy days. Happy birthday. Thank Hi. you. <laughs> and I'm in Melbourne, and my very favourite cake shop is in Melbourne, Beatrix, <gasps> oh, based yes. in North Melbourne. Yeah. And Amazing. Like, that's the biggest thing that I'm most excited about next (laughs) on my agenda. Definitely trying to – well, there has been a lot of interest in this book, which has been great. So hopefully I'll keep talking about it. Mm -hmm. Um, Hopefully – I live very much on a like let's just survive the day because we've got three kids. There's a lot of things going on in our house and every day that we all survive where everyone is fed, ideally has the right equipment for the right day. That doesn't always happen. (laughs) And dressed. (laughs) And dressed, ideally. you know, and I think that's also one of the things that is quite good about kids because you do sort of have to live in the moment yeah. a little bit. And I, I, cause because I am anxious, I actually find long-term plans really stressful, uh, really I overwhelming. I, we just took a two-week break. This is such a deviation from Zara's question. But <laughs> having an idle mind is the worst thing for my anxiety. The busier, the better. Yes. Like if I'm busy, totally fine. If I have like four hours in a day where I'm just sitting at home by myself, I'm like, oh, yeah, that's right. All these anxious <laughs> thoughts are in my head. Yes, exactly. So keeping busy is good. And I also do, yeah, I have this great fear like when my husband updates our joint calendar with his rosters and things like that it makes I actually want to vomit because I'm like oh my god and then I'm like you don't it'll be fine it will be fine it doesn't actually matter we'll survive and even you know of course we'll survive and what was the second question some women that you look up to who inspire you yeah okay well um certainly my mum um she so she definitely bore the brunt of my breakdown because she was the one living with me and she was the one who was probably even more invested than I was in, in, in getting me better. And she just showed me, she, you know, she turned up every single day and she tried so hard and I can, and now, you know, at the time I wasn't a parent and now I am a parent and I just think I cannot imagine how difficult that would have been for her. Mm-hmm. And yet she, she did it. And she was also at the same time being in, you know, an amazing mother to my other two siblings. And she's 
she's amazing to our whole family and she is also has got a career that she loves and she has always always encouraged us and made me feel like seeking out my own life that is not just me as a as a girl or as a parent but as what I want to be you know and I think that's a huge having purpose is huge and she has always encouraged and fostered that and so I do I look up to her a lot I have got do you know what there are so many women in my life that I admire for different reasons on different days. You know, a couple of my best friends from school, one of them is a child psychologist now and she she mostly deals with teenagers and she's absolutely unbelievable. And, um, you know, another one of my good friends sort of, sort of took the leap and started a business in Brisbane last year and it's just going amazingly well. And I just think it's so brave, you know, mm. to step out and do something different. I admire Angela Priestley who owns Women's Agenda. I admire her enormously. I, I love working with her. The list is endless, actually, it's of women. That, it is. It is a hard question. I admire both of you oh, enormously. No. <laughs> Don't do that. I do. Look at that red Zara. Sorry, this is my favourite thing. Anytime Zara, someone gives Zara a compliment, she just goes to the colour of a tomato. No, yeah. that is very sweet. And thank you. Thank you so much, not just for coming on, but for writing the book. I think being able to tell your story in the way that you are telling it is incredibly clarifying for a lot of mm. young people, oh, young and old. But I know even someone who has chronic illness and Michelle who has chronic illness and mental health, I think there's a lot of clarifying stuff that can come from reading somebody else's experience. And I don't think um, you can possibly underestimate that power. So thank you. Thank you, thank guys. You. And thank you so much for having me on. Oh, it's been a delight. Yeah, we've loved it. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the amazing Georgie Dunt. For more from Georgie, you can buy her book, Breaking Badly, at any good bookstore or find her on Twitter at Georgie Dent. And us, you'll find us on Instagram, as always, at Shameless Podcast. We will see you guys next week. Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for Style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.